This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus 2014. The very passage I just announced provided the backdrop for an incredibly embarrassing incident in church history. After the King James Version of the Bible was published in 1611, within 20 years it had become the most printed book in the world. With such popular demand for scripture, many many printing presses were eager to help spread the word while they also made a handsome profit for their business. In 1631, a London-based printer called Barker and Lucas decided to print and sell copies of these Bibles, but somewhere along the way, they made a gross mistake. When it came to the seventh commandment found in Exodus 20:14, the word not was mysteriously Not there. That's right. Instead of thou shalt not commit adultery, the text read, thou shalt commit adultery. And so since this copy of scripture appeared to endorse infidelity, it earned it the nickname, the Wicked Bible. As soon as the king discovered this, he immediately ordered all the copies to be gathered up and destroyed. He then fined those men 300 pounds, which was a massive amount of money in 1631, and revoked their printing license. Why such excess? Because marriage is a holy and divine ordinance in the eyes of God. And when it comes to Holy Scripture, every word matters. One of the great privileges of being a minister is getting to officiate weddings. I was for years asked to sing at weddings, which was a cause of great dread. (laughs) If you mess up a song at a bride's wedding, she will never forget. (laughs) But I love to officiate them. I love to pronounce a man and woman for the first time, husband and wife. I typically insist on using the traditional vows from the Book of Common Prayer because they articulate a well-worn promise for the couple to recite as they enter into the covenant of marriage. I turn to the groom and I say to him, repeat after me, and at that point in the service, a groom will say anything. (laughs) I ask him, will you have this woman to be your wedded wife? To live together after God's ordinance in the holiest state of matrimony. Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health? And forsaking all others, keep yourself only unto her so long as you both shall live. And the husband mumbles his best, I will. And then I ask the bride the same series of questions and she says in her best Disney princess voice, I will. (laughs) Embedded in those vows is an incredibly serious reality of marriage. Did you catch it? Forsaking all others, keep yourself only 
unto her. Those are words of exclusion. For the husband, it means that his thoughts and his heart and his body are meant only for his wife. And the same is true for the woman in regard to her husband. This kind of undivided bond is no man-made invention, but a reality that springs from the fountainhead of Scripture. It's from the very heart of God. If we were to do an honest assessment of our culture today, it would seem that many people would actually have little disagreement with the error of the wicked Bible. Adultery seems a small thing. It intrigues me how society so obsessed with looking for true love is so cavalier about marriage where true committed love is meant to flourish. Instead, we live as though God had given his endorsement for sexuality in whatever way that we see fit. Adultery in our day is a sin that is excused away or quickly dismissed and in in certain circumstances even celebrated. But God never excuses or dismisses, much less celebrates the sin of adultery under any circumstances. The seventh commandment instructs the people of God to be men and women who, forsaking all others, honor and protect the institution of marriage. As God continues to form his people by his word, and that's what he's doing, which each of his commands, he gives instruction on the most sacred relationship on earth, the union of husband and wife. From this passage, we'll explore God's good design for marriage as well as how this command applies to each of us, whether married or single, and how we seek to honor God in our war against what the Bible calls the lust of the flesh. I want to divide our sermon into two main headings. First, the sanctity of marriage, and second, the purity of hearts. So, A couple of weeks ago, we practiced in our looking at the sixth commandment, what this first said in the book of Exodus, and then how Jesus transforms and deepens that command in the New Testament. And so today, I want to look at two passages, both Exodus 20, 14, and Matthew 5, 27 to 30. And here we'll see both the contours of the external obedience and the inward reality. So there's our heading. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word. Let me get my place in both books. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Exodus 20:14. You shall not commit adultery. Matthew 5:27 to 30. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. The grass withers, the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Amen. 
The first subject we'll explore is the sanctity of marriage. The first five commands we studied were accompanied by helpful commentary that explained each command in some way. From the sixth command and beyond, there's not one single word of explanation or application, just the bare stating of the command. The seventh commandment is simply, you shall not commit adultery. In Hebrew, it's just two words, just like the sixth command, lo naf, which literally means no adulterating, that's a verb, or never adulterate. Well, what does it mean to commit adultery? The simplest answer is that adultery is marital infidelity. It is sexual intercourse that breaks the bond of a marriage covenant. Now, the primary purpose of this command is to protect the institution of marriage and to cause human flourishing to happen within the good that God meant it to be. Adultery in the ancient world was no small offense. It's called the great sin. We see that in Genesis 20, verse 9, and Exodus 32, 21. And the reason it's called the great sin is because how it violates the sacredness of a marriage covenant made between a man and a woman before their maker. Christopher Wright observed how this command comes in between those dealing with murder and theft, which is appropriate since adultery has something in common with both. It can kill love and joy in marriage or kill the marriage itself. And it steals something or someone that belongs exclusively to another. Before taking one more step, let's acknowledge that there are many in this room who have felt the way in which the sting of adultery can steal and kill and destroy a marriage, even from within. I'd like to pause for a few moments and think together about the subject of marriage by laying some biblical foundations. I want to answer the question, why did God create marriage? Well, the simplest reason is, like all things, God created it for his glory and for our joy. You might say the chief end of marriage is to glorify God by enjoying him with your spouse till death do you part. I like that definition. I wrote it. I mean, with a little help from the Westminster Catechism, but there it is. The chief end of marriage is to glorify God by enjoying Him with your spouse till death do you part. So why is God so concerned about marriage that in this list of the Ten Commandments, He would devote one of them to this subject? Well, there are many truths that we could highlight, but for the sake of our time, I want to briefly observe three. First, marriage is a creation ordinance. Marriage is a creation ordinance. God is the author of marriage. And when did he create this wonderful gift? In the beginning. We return to the very passage we looked at two weeks ago, Genesis 1, 27. For God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. And there we see that men and women are both made to be image bearers of the maker, of God himself. 
shaped and fashioned uniquely by the very hand of God. And then it carries on. Genesis 1.28 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Theologians call this the creation mandate, or the first great commission. For man and woman to fill the earth with offspring, to have dominion over all creation. Yet, Adam could not do this on his own. It would require a man and a woman, with no exceptions, who complemented him to procreate and to bear children. Genesis chapter 2 tells a story, beginning in verse 20. For Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Woe Man. Woe Man. (laughs) Because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In the beginning of creation, God's plan was that one man and one woman would marry, and the fruit of their union would be the fulfillment of the plans that God had established for the world. Marriage is not our idea. It wasn't made by the Hallmark Channel or in the 1950s. Marriage is part of the creation ordinance. Second, marriage is a covenant reflection. It's a creation ordinance, and it is also a covenant reflection. Marriage reflects the covenantal love that God has promised to his people. One of the metaphors the New Testament frequently uses is that the church is the bride of Christ. But this marital imagery is also found in the pages of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 to 7 say, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The Lord God, the God of all whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife who was deserted and grieved in spirit. It goes on to say, but with great compassion, he has gathered his bride to himself. Isaiah is saying, the Lord's like the husband of his people who redeemed them and will show them great compassion. The sexual purity required in the covenant of marriage was one way that God intended to demonstrate his covenant faithfulness to his people. The scriptures will describe Israel's disobedience to God's commands as unfaithfulness. Uh, It'll even use the phrase they were committing spiritual adultery. One place we find that is in James 4.4. Hosea, the prophet, also spoke of a day um, accusing Israel of spiritual adultery but looking forward to a day where that would be cleansed. He writes in chapter 2, verse 16, My husband, oh, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. 
and will no longer call me my Baal. There you see that the people of God here on this mountain would break the first commandment in calling God by a different name, worshiping God by a different name. Marriage is a covenant that reflects God's covenant to God's people. And the third truth I'd like to highlight is that marriage is a gospel picture. It's a gospel picture. What we see in the shadows of the Old Testament, we behold more fully in the light of the new. The Apostle Paul explains in his letter to the Ephesians how marriage points ultimately to the relationship between Christ, who is often called the bridegroom, to his church, who is often referred to as the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 31 and 32 echoes what we saw in Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul adds this. This mystery is profound. And from the environment of marriage, he shows the glory of the relationship between Christ and his church. He says, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The mystery is not man and wife. We can understand that. The mystery is the bride and the bridegroom, Christ and his church. And so there are some biblical foundations are important for us to understand the, the reason for the seventh command. Each of them helps ground it. Because marriage is a creation ordinance, we do not have the ability to define its terms or redefine the union according to our thoughts on the matter. The maker has designed and defined marriage according to his plan. And because marriage is a covenant reflection, it's an institution that must be honored and protected as an expression of God's covenantal love for his people. And since marriage is a gospel picture, we must pray that the gospel of Jesus soaks the heart of husband and wife and so that Jesus is prized and treasured in the home and that our marriages are actually reflections of the good news of the gospel or little pictures of Christ and his church. So because marriage is a creation ordinance and a covenant reflection and a gospel picture, well, adultery is the defilement of the good gift that God has given us. At the conclusion of this first point, I have two uses for this doctrine that I want to pull into view. The first is simply for us to look through the lens of the seventh commandment and recover biblically marriage as a precious gift from God. We've seen how each of these commands have both a negative and a positive even if it's stated negatively, it also has a positive connotation. And so the opposite of do not commit adultery is honor the ordinance of marriage. We do this like we flee from sin like Joseph did. And from any sexual sin against our spouse and against our God. So for those of us who are married, let us defend and protect and go to great lengths to ensure the health of our marriages. And to all of you who are single, I'm asking you to pray for the marriages of our church, that they would be strong, built on Christ, and they would demonstrate the love of Christ to this community. The second use I want to draw out is simply a strong warning. 
in a room this size, certainly there is someone wrestling with the sin of adultery. Uh, Perhaps you have a deleted text thread on your phone that you didn't want anyone to see or you've cleared your search history thinking that would fix things. Or perhaps you entertain lingering looks with a coworker or participate in flirtatious conversation with someone other than your spouse. Well, I, I plead with you on the authority of God's word, run. Like Joseph ran, run. Adultery is an attack on the sanctity of marriage. The second subject I want to look at is the purity of hearts. Now that we've heard how God spoke to his people on Mount Sinai, let us turn our attention to how Jesus transforms and widens this command in his Sermon on the Mount. The second passage we read from Matthew 5 shows us this command was never meant to be skin deep, but sink down into our hearts. This is true of all of the commands The Lord is not looking just for external, external obedience, but he's after our hearts. He wants internal transformation. Jesus insists that just because you've not had an extramarital affair doesn't mean you've kept this commandment. Perhaps you thought you would skate through this day thinking, okay, well, I've at least not done that. Well, I want you to see what happens here. The physical act of adultery, Jesus says and shows, is simply the outworking of a darkened spiritual condition of the heart that we would call lust, and Jesus calls lust. Matthew 5.28 says, I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, there's a difference here between physical adultery and what seems to be here we could call heart adultery. With that statement, um, even this room went from being perhaps a few people who had broken this command to every single one of us. And we can't make ourselves clean, not by our good works. Not by attending church, not by reading the Bible. We can't earn forgiveness of sin. And so we must run to Christ for forgiveness. We can't cover the scope of the sin in, in one sermon or all the applications that we could draw from it, but I want to highlight two primary areas of our lives that we must be warring against. Our hearts and our eyes. Let's look at our hearts first, since that's the overarching theme we're looking at here, the purity of our hearts. Um, Old Testament scholar John Currid explains it like this, the body may commit the act, but the heart has given its birth. The body may commit the act, but the heart has given its birth. This is an echo of what Jesus writes and the apostle Mark writes in the Gospel of Mark 7, 21 to 23, where Jesus says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. That is a totally different message than our culture says. They say, you're a pretty good person, and if you choose to sin, well, those are just mistakes you've made. And surely, look around, everybody's doing it. But no, no, the Bible prescribes the heart of the condition is our heart itself. The phrase sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, which is where we get our English word pornography. The word porneia is defined as an unlawful sexual intercourse, prostitution, unchastity, fornication. In the Old Testament, it's used to describe any sexual sin outside of marriage between a man and a woman. In Greek literature, it's used to describe a wider range of sexual sin, including adultery, but also fornication, prostitution, and even homosexuality. Jesus is saying that all of these sins, these expressions of sin, flow from the same fountainhead, a sinful heart. And so what do we need in regard to our hearts? Well, first of all, we need new hearts. We must have new hearts. This is part of the promise that Christ fulfills, where he says, When Christ comes, he'll replace our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh, hearts that were cold and rigid toward the commands of God. And now, like the psalmist says in Psalm 119, he'll enlarge our hearts so that we can run in the way of their testimonies. Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, our hearts love the darkness instead of the light. So we need new hearts. And for those of us who've been given them by faith in Christ, in Christ alone, another reality about our hearts sets in. We must guard them from sin. Proverbs 4.23 instructs us, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Friends, the problem with our lust is not things outside of us. The problem is our hearts. And second, our eyes. Our eyes. And I realize that's an external thing. We're looking at internal things. But I, I think you'll make the connection in just a moment. As a boy, we would sometimes sing a song that began like this. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. And perhaps there has never been a more important time in history to protect our eyes than right now in a world flooded with images meant to grab our attention and grab us by the sinful heart. Jesus said in Matthew 6, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Each of us have known the darkness being spoken of there. And I hope you'll join me in praying, God, we want to be people whose eyes are fixed on you. A people who guard our eyes 
to pass to our children, to teach them, guard your eyes. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I ordered a book for Caden and I, my 17-year-old, to read through together. That um, was written by a friend of mine named Garrett Kell. And the book is entitled Pure in Heart. This is what he instructs us to do when it comes to where we look. What do we do with our eyes? He says, what we need is to fix our eyes on the beauty of God himself. We must kill the sin that tempts us to look away from him. And we kill it, here's the answer, by looking at him. The way to escape sin's darkness is by beholding the light of the glory of Christ. So let me call each of us in this room on the authority of Scripture to honor the Lord with our eyes. To not waste our glances that anything that would linger or fill us with lust or to desire someone other than our spouse, but who have been captivated by the beauty of Christ, a beauty that will never fade. A beauty that in beholding has the power to transform hearts. Job said, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust upon a woman. The way that we fight the lust of our eyes is to look to a greater beauty. And the beauty of Christ is far greater than the beauty of sin. Some weeks ago, I came across a quote by one of my favorite Puritans, Thomas Watson. And I I was so helped by what he wrote. I didn't know which commandment to use it in. I kind of want to use it in all of them. But it seemed right today. He wrote these words in 1692. And let's decide if we can apply these words today. Let's see if much has changed He wrote, the devil has two false glasses, which he sets before men's eyes. The one is a little glass in which the sin appears so small it can hardly be seen, which the devil sets before men's eyes when they are going to commit a sin. The other is a great magnifying glass, wherein sin appears so big that it cannot be forgiven which the devil sets before men's eyes when they have sinned. So, Brothers and sisters, do you hear in that illustration the two lies of the enemy when it comes to our sin? If you have walked toward sin because it seemed in your sight such an insignificant thing that God probably wouldn't care, he does. It is a great sin. Every sin against him is a great sin. Yet if you find yourself even under the conviction of the Holy Spirit because of your sin today and you hear the lie that your sin is so great that God cannot forgive you, it is not. Your sins may be many. The mercy of Christ is more. You may be a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. So what if you have committed adultery, either physically or heart adultery? Well, let's speak to the physical side first. My hope is that this command fills you not with shame, but sends you to Christ. If you've broken God's law, any of his law, any of his commands, 
one of two things are true. Uh, the blood is either on your hands or it's been paid for by the blood of Christ by hands that were nailed to the tree. You must repent of your sin. I've met with more couples over the years than I would wish to count that have endured the sting of adultery. And oftentimes in sitting with them, I want to care for them pastorally. I want to apply the gospel everywhere I can. But first, you, I, I've got to lead them to understand that there's a great sin that's been committed against a holy God. Oftentimes when it comes to sexual sin, um, a person will feel shame and regret inwardly. They might even lament all the damages of that sin, how they've embarrassed their wife or um, you know, even split apart a family. And all of those are real. But the greatest offense of any sin is how we've broken a holy God's law. And we've got to feel the weight of that in order to be leveled and fly to Christ for forgiveness. If, you, if that's you, the Bible teaches you exactly what to pray. Psalm chapter 51 is a prayer written by a murdering adulterer who says, in the midst of after murdered a man and, and taken his wife, says, against you and you alone, God, have I sinned. He's not negating the fact of all these people he's wounded by his own sin. But he's face to face with the holy God, which is where repentance begins. And for all of us who have committed heart adultery, I pray that we will take this command seriously and not just swim in the cultural waters of our day, excusing things away and winking away sin, but that we would guard our hearts from anything there's a sin against the Lord. That we would guard our eyes from what we watch, what we glance at, what we look to. And I pray for each of us that feel conviction of sin. We would look to Christ together this morning and you would leave here with the gospel being sweeter than when you walked in. The forgiveness of Christ. What a wonderful thing. The seventh commandment instructs us to be men and women who, forsaking all others, honor and protect the institution of marriage, to receive God's good design for marriage, and that our marriages would flourish. It also reaches into our hearts, saying, look to Christ. Look away from things that will lead us to death. And look to Christ. Behold the one who alone brings life. This is the message of the seventh commandment. Let's pray to God for his help. Lord, you tell us in your word, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I thank you for those of us who even with an impossible command for us to obey have been credited righteous, counted holy because of what Jesus has done. And that even though we are fallen people, we will see you on that day. I pray for any friends who are here that have not yet trusted in Christ by repenting of sin and believing on Jesus alone by the blood of Christ that spilled for sinners. I pray that today the, that your word would do its work, God. 
your word would do its work, that your kindness would lead someone to repentance, even this morning. We ask all of this by the power of the Holy Spirit and in the precious, saving name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.